Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur with your host, Steve Kidd, third-generation minister and 30-year business coach. Listen in as amazing, world-changing authors, speakers, and coaches share their struggles and victories and hear from best-selling authors' insight into how you, too, can live your life as a thriving entrepreneur. This is Steve. Welcome to Thriving Entrepreneur. Thanks for being with me here today as we talk about the very important question. What are you doing with what you believe? So many times we have very closely held beliefs um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be religious beliefs. It could be that thing that's really important to you in the world. That thing that you know needs to be done. But the question that each one of my guests today is going to bring up in a really powerful way for each of us is what are we doing about what we believe? How are we using our business to advance the world and make it a better place, to show up in the world in the way that we're meant to show up, and to really do something about what we believe, to really truly be about our beliefs rather than just talking about what we believe. It's really an important difference, isn't it? And so I want you to spend this entire episode listening and talking to yourself about what am I doing about what I believe? How can I make that real? How can I really bring to light something that is going to create opportunity for others in the world based off of those things that I feel are important? And how can I use that to help me live as a thriving entrepreneur? Now, with that in mind, let's jump right in to our first guest. Join me in welcoming Sheldon Gilbert. Hey, Sheldon, how are you doing today? Hey, Steve, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So first off, tell us a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Yeah, so uh, background uh, really began in the sciences. I studied um, undergrad molecular genetics. And then I, uh, around that time when I graduated in 1997, Steve, there were basically two major things going on in the world. Um, one was the human genome was being mapped. And then also uh, the internet um, revolutions really started to take off. So back then, you know, if you could, uh, if you could spell HTML, you had money thrown at you. And so I joined some buddies from undergrad and we went out to Silicon Valley at Couchsurf for a year. And I never looked back. Uh, and I started working for a systems integration firm. We built all the first generation e-commerce systems, which is really quite exciting. And then from there, I became a database engineer. I taught myself to do a lot of backend database engineering, data engineering, database coding, and so forth. And then after that, I've been uh, launched a, a predictive analytics company called Proclivity Systems, which now has morphed into a real-time electronic marketplace for trading uh, digital ads. And we focus primarily in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and then about four years ago, I launched a nonprofit, a, a cloud computing um, uh, training academy that provides free training and job placement for people from underserved communities to become cloud computing engineers, uh, given the remarkable demand uh, in the market for those kinds of skills. I love that. And especially back in the days, back when we were all starting off the internet, it was such a different marketplace. I wish we could kind of get back to it in some ways because, yeah. you know, I mean, I remember the days when you could call your 
best, biggest competitor. And they would just flat out tell you everything they were doing and you'd tell them everything <laughs> you were doing. And we were all just all best friends, you know? And right, right. we kind of lost that somewhere along the way. Yeah, or frenemies, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's cool. So um, tell us a little bit about this digital marketplace. Um, how does it work? What, what what can we do with it? Yeah, so the, the, the two main areas um, that I'm focusing, um, primarily first with Proclivity, uh, that basically is really in the area of called programmatic advertising, as I'm sure you, you're well aware that nearly anything now could be sort of automated. And so not unlike the financial markets where you see that most of the trades are effectively orchestrated by pre-programmed machines and algorithms that are actually doing buying and selling of various sort of financial uh, you know, instruments and so forth, whether it's equities, stocks, fixed income, um, you basically have effectively what marketplaces are there, there are massive matching engines, matching buyers and sellers, and they're doing pretty high speed order matching. Um, and so taking that same model, um, there are a number of other electronic marketplaces that exist outside of the financial markets, um, ones that are fairly high speed. So it turns out that most of the times when you actually go online, you actually see an ad on a page there, Steve, chances are that that ad was actually sold in real time on the 30 milliseconds. That's faster than you blink your eye. Effectively, there are hundreds, if not thousands of machines all around the globe that are sitting there and they're effectively listening to various signals coming from your mobile device or your laptop where the publisher, the one who's selling the ad is emitting a signal and saying, um, user cookie ID 347 is on this page. This page is about organic uh, you know, baby food. <laughs> uh, the person's located in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, Raleigh, and they, um, and the temperature outside is about uh, 67 degrees, uh, and they're an iPhone 15. Uh, and based on those parameters, different brands will decide if they're willing to bid and how much they're willing to bid. And, um, and effectively, a, a winner is chosen, the ad serves. And again, as I mentioned, that all happens under 30 milliseconds, um, which is quite fast. And so, um, you know, our software, we actually built both the buy side as well as the sell side engine uh, to orchestrate that entire transaction that happens quite quickly. Um, so that's what, you know, primarily we do at Proclivity. And it was interesting because, you know, around 2013, which is relatively early in the sort of cloud computing era, we migrated from our data center um, onto AWS and as, as the story goes, you know, we sort of got our teeth kicked in. We, we actually were looking around. We could barely find any cloud engineers, Steve. So, um, you know, we we literally would just basically kidnap you. If you even knew anything about cloud, we'd kidnap you, bring you back to the back cave and just pay you to train you on how to, how, to, how to sort of set up EC2 instances and sort of get us onto the cloud. And it was the, really that served as an impetus for, for, for really what I'm focused on, on now primarily, which is around uh, this, this nonprofit that's focused on on providing job training, given the massive workforce imbalance that we see in the marketplace, not to mention growing income inequality. So, um, you know, effectively develop this vocational academy, if you will, for the 21st century economy, where we provide free training and job placement to people from underserved communities. Most of them actually have actually have no technical background. Um, and, um, you know, what, what we do look for are people who are insatiably curious, have a relentless work ethic, are highly resourceful, and are really good systems thinkers. We That's what we, you know, you can't teach those things. So those are the things that we look for. We can teach you Python, we can teach you Bash, 
We can teach you Docker, Terraform, and Kubernetes. Those things we can teach. The other things we can't. And so um, it's a six-month um, training program. We basically collapse effectively two and a half, three years worth of real commercial work, industrial work. We condense that into six months. And we've been really fortunate to see that over this uh, relatively short period of time, we've actually done about four training cycles now, with about an 80 to 90% placement rate uh, at many of Fortune 500 companies. So companies like Morgan Stanley, Bloomberg, DraftKings, NASDAQ, S&P Global, JP Morgan Chase have hired uh, many of our engineers. Average starting salary, Steve, is about 100000 and they're coming from households of twenty to 30000 So within six months, we're effectively changing the economic trajectory of themselves uh, as well as their families. So we, we've been, it's been a really exciting time. And as a result, we just recently received uh, sizable support from uh, Mackenzie Scott um, and, uh, and as well as a number of other major foundations who've been very supportive. Um, so that's been quite exciting for us. So for the person that's listening and they're like, you know, I'm in the twenty thirty thousand dollars range. I would love to learn this stuff. Um, is it open to everybody? Is there only certain neighborhoods, areas, things that you work with? Or how would a person that's interested in what you're talking about get involved with that and go to your, your training? Yeah, it's a great question. The first thing is the, our, our, the companies, the organizations called Kura Labs, K-U-R-A-L-A-B-S.org, KuraLabs.org. Um, it is primarily focused on underserved communities, Stephen. So we, what it means for us effectively are those who, you know, are probably making, you know, in that in that range, you know, less than forty, fifty thousand dollars a year effectively, and and it's fully remote. We provide live synchronous training, um, and so we're it's a it's fairly ubiquitous in in that regard. We could actually, you know, you know, bring on people from all over the country, and we actually have also train people outside of the United States. I'm originally from the Caribbean, from St. Lucia. So we've actually also trained people in St. Lucia, um, in Trinidad, and we're also looking to expand to other regions in the Eastern Caribbean as well, but primarily all over the United States. And the, the goal here is to you know, bring this everywhere, Appalachia, the Mississippi Delta, Native American reservations, uh, all over the, this country. For, you know, as you can imagine, for a host of reasons, um, making free is quite important when you actually have a lot of people who are, you know, enter, you know, end up having to sort of go to college and graduating with intractable debt, you know, um, and they'll never be able to pay off that debt given these very insidious, you know, uh, you know, interest rates that they're, that, that they're paying on, on, on for, the, for their student loans. So we've really created this as an, as an alternative stream for them. Mm, I love that so much. All right. So um, talk to us about what the next step is. I mean, you're doing some really cool things. What's next for you guys? Yeah, so it's a good question. You know, I think next right now is about scale. You know, as an entrepreneur, you always think, always think about, well, listen, we've we've trained in place about, as we mentioned before, about a, a hundred people over this elapsed time. And, you know, effectively in aggregate, we've probably helped generate over $12 million in new wages. The question, Steve, is how do we go from a hundred to a thousand to 10,000, a hundred thousand to several million? Um, and as I'm sure you know, uh, you know, there are a number of very interesting things that are occurring right now in the world. Um, namely, um, there is a massive workforce imbalance. I think there have been projections that have shown there's probably going to be an $8.6 million, trillion dollar, rather, uh, revenue loss as a result of the shortage of cloud infrastructure engineers globally. At the same time, we've seen that, that college enrollment rates are actually going down. 
the cost of college, as you know, is going up. The cost of the degree vastly outpaces the economic utility of that degree. We also see growing anxiety given the rise of, of AI and people thinking about, you know, the stability of their of their careers, <laughs> um, you know, in the, in, the, in the decades ahead. Um, and so one of the things that, that we're thinking about is how, how do we scale this? And what's really exciting is that we realize we've been receiving a number of calls from a lot of traditional academic institutions. Um, academic institutions, unfortunately, have been sort of woefully inadequate in their training to provide people with the requisite skills to actually enter the, te the technology uh, industry. I don't care if you've gone, if you have like a PhD from <laughs> Caltech or, or Stanford or MIT or Yale, where, where I went, um, chances are it's been focused heavily on sort of deeply theoretical aspects, big O notation, Merkle trees. Well, that's great, but the reality is um, you've never, chances are you've actually never been trained in developing enterprise grade, um, so, you know, Java-based software applications or Python applications that actually have to scale uh, that also are, you know, you know, sort of subject to c constant security threats and have to sort of, you know, learn how to provision those things in a short period of time uh, along a CI/CD pipeline. So there's never been that practical experience. So we see we're now being contacted by a number of longstanding institutions, various vocational schools, colleges, universities, high schools, uh, governments, if you can imagine that, um, to actually now basically take our model and effectively transpose that within their four walls and basically help them develop their own cloud infrastructure, uh, the interesting when you say cloud infrastructure, by the way, ostensibly that means so many derivative fields, whether it's cybersecurity, DevOps, data ops, data engineering, even with all the, the, the tremendous momentum around AI, even that is computationally intensive and requires its own infrastructure. I mean, there are conversations going on right now about whether you actually need different servers or different databases. There's a talk around using vector data databases versus relational databases. Regardless, all of that needs, all those specialized systems need the infrastructure to run. So there's also this consideration of AI computing infrastructure engineering, right? So where we're going next is effectively think about it sort of as a, you know, OEMing or <laughs> creating an API into our own, our own nonprofit whereby which we're now availing our resources, our IP, our instructors, training their instructors on how to teach this, really upgrading their um, career centers at a lot of universities to make sure that they have, um, that they're ready for engaging with employers. I, I give you something very basic. Look, Steve, when you and I were coming up, it was all about our resume, right? And then now, and you know, in the last 10 years, it's really been about, you know, someone's LinkedIn profile. I'll tell you what now, no people, no, they may look at the LinkedIn profile, barely look at the resume. It's all about having a GitHub, a GitHub repository, right? It turns out that, think of it as sort of like Instagram for geeks, right? Where, whereby which all of your code is in this single repository that employers or anybody could see, oh, how active are you in writing code? Um, who else is looking at your code? Who else is downloading your code? Who else is starring your code? Who is forking your code? All these different things. So you see this remarkable professional network built around people's code repositories and so, for instance, you know, one of the things that we do is we make sure that all of our graduates actually have a GitHub repository, right? Which is which really helps them stand out to employers. These are basic things, table stakes, to enter the the innovation economy. And most universities or vocational schools or tr 
they're not even aware of these things, right? So these are the massive blind spots that that we make sure that we cover. So we basically sort of, you know, hitting that sort of you know global reboot, <laughs> if you will, and ensuring that a lot of these longstanding institutions actually now have the proper curriculum, the resources, the instructors to now work directly with with industry as was always intended, but now there's been this sort of growing chasm between both. Well, I absolutely love that. So for people who would like to go deeper with you, how can they get in contact with you? Yeah, again, um, best way is really, well, two, I'm happy to share, share my email address. It's Sheldon, S-H-E-L-D-O-N at curlabs.org, K-U-R-A-L-A-B-S.org. Uh, you could also reach me on LinkedIn uh, and also the website's uh, curalabs.org. I love it. Well, Sheldon, you're doing some really cool stuff in the world. Thanks for all that you're doing. And thanks for being here on the show today. Steve, thanks so much for having me. And thanks for your support, brother. It means a lot. Thanks again. You all that know me know that I'm a big geek, but I love this opportunity. I wish it would have existed when I was that age. And I really, really hope there's some of you out there that can take advantage of this amazing opportunity to better yourself and live as a thriving entrepreneur. Hi, my name is Steve Kidd. I am a third generation minister, an international best-selling author of multiple books, and I help people write, publish, and market their books to bestseller. In fact, there are literally thousands of people that have used the system that I created to be able to write, publish, and market their books, and now they're best-selling authors, and you're next. I just wanted to come on for a minute, say hi to you, tell you a little bit about me, introduce myself, and tell you... I know the world is waiting on your message, and I would be so honored to be part of sharing your message with the world. Go to AskStevekid.com and schedule a time to talk today. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today while we talk about what are you doing with what you believe. We've got some really great guests and I want to just jump right back into the next one. Join me in welcoming Coach Dan Gordon. Hey Dan, how are you doing today? I am living the dream, Steve. So good to meet you. Absolutely. Glad to have you here with us. Tell us first a little bit about you and how you show up in the world. Oh, that's a great question. The the thing I love doing and my purpose behind my coaching and pretty much everything I do is to what I call expand people's consciousness. You know, the fact is, is that we are the creators of every part of our lives and that what we believe we make real. And while that isn't in itself a revolutionary concept, I think what what is a revolutionary or more revolutionary concept is the idea that if you're struggling with something, you actually put it there for the purpose of growth and learning more about yourself, right? The people that we bring into our lives who we struggle with or the situations that we struggle with, they're actually tremendous learning opportunities. And what I find is that if you don't really fully um, surrender to that truth, the problems just get bigger. 
But instead, if you're willing to really dive in, uh, what I call step into the fire, you're going to learn so much faster and so much larger from the experiences that you don't like. Can I give you an example of that? Yes, please do. Okay. So about seven years ago, uh, I made a mistake. Uh, I, I had a marketing company called the Big Time Group. It's, it's still out there. You can you can take a look at the website. Um, and I made a, a I made a single mistake in that in that uh, company that collapsed the company. In a month, I lost seventy thousand dollars. I was thirty thousand dollars in debt and literally on the floor in snot and tears. And even though I was struggling, I knew that what was happening was for my benefit. That that the I could really easily blame someone for the struggles that I was having because I inadvertently hired a pathological liar. And it'd be really easy to say, hey, if I hadn't hired this guy, everything would have been fine. But but in even in that struggle, I knew, wow, something is happening here. I I I hired that guy, I made the mistakes, I ignored the red flags for a larger purpose. And the larger purpose was was that I really didn't like marketing. I'm just good at it. And what I really wanted to do um, that I was afraid of doing is what I'm doing now. And that's why we create chaos in our lives. It's that we're afraid of stepping into our higher selves. And so we create this chaos to sort of avoid doing that. And so when I made the, the choice that I was actually going to do what I love doing, what, I what I've been great at my entire professional life, which was being in the changing people's lives business. Eight months later, almost to the very day I was on the floor in Staten Tears, eight months later, I walk out on a stage in Dallas, Texas, being paid $10,000 for my very first speaking gig. And now that that transition from going from the floor to the stage was the hardest experience I had ever had. I, I mean, I had to literally change everything that I believed about myself in order to do that. But that's a perfect example of how the difficulties that we face, we bring into our lives for a higher purpose. And, and that's why I really encourage people, instead of saying, wow, this awful thing is happening, or um, you know, this person screwed me up, or here are the circumstances that are creating my problems, to actually do an investigation of like, hmm, why, why, why is this going on? And what am I not paying attention to that has brought this into my life? I know that's a lot, a lot of talking from me. Uh, really want to know what you think of that, Steve. Oh, I love that. I was thinking of a book title that I tried to get one of my authors to use. They didn't use it, so you can steal this. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I tried to get them to use the title On the Floor Where Hope Rushed In. Wow. Um, yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, so yeah, you, you can steal that for the title for your book. Um, <laughs> I've I've been there. Yeah. And and you know, just so you know, this isn't just all sort of touchy feely and rainbow rainbows and uh, unicorns. Um I I have a dual approach in my coaching and what I call tactical and emotional. And the emotional part is what I've just talked about, right? There is an emotional quadrant. There's something that you're feeling, thinking, or or way that you're reacting that is a block to your success. And when we dive into those to to that emotional quadrant, you're going to discover what it is that you're doing that's causing the the problems and the resistance. 
That's the emotional side. The tactical side is, okay, now that we know that, what do you do? And the thing that I love doing with clients is talking about sales. Because really anything that you struggle with in life or business shows up in a sales interaction. You know, anything that um, you're avoiding, if you're avoiding talking about money, or if you don't really fully feel your value, it shows up in a sales interaction. And so when you're having a conversation, wherever, whatever part of that conversation where you feel intimidated or you feel stressed, right there, it's pointing to a place that you're struggling with and you need some help with. So sales is really the ultimate diagnostic tool in whatever you struggle with in business and frankly, and in life. And that's why I love helping people increase their sales in a, in a, a method I call authentic selling. And authentic selling really betrays all of the classic sales tropes, all the, the Sandler type methods of selling, the open and the close and the, you know, all of that stuff that's designed to manipulate people. And in selling authentically, it it's really a matter of listening to what your prospect is struggling with and kind of taking them into that struggle. So can I give you an example of that? Yes, please do. Okay. So classic thing. Somebody says it's too expensive, right? And when someone says it's too expensive, typically what an entrepreneur will, will say is, oh, no, 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 but there's a lot of value here. Let me show you the value, right? They'll go right back into product features and benefits. Because what they think is, if I can convince someone of my value or the value of my product or service, then they'll just make the natural, logical, intellectual choice to buy. But that's not how people buy. People don't buy based on intellect. They buy based on emotion. They have to feel good about the sale. And so instead of going into all of those things, there's four simple words that, that I use that have transformed every one of my client sales. And I share these four simple words because I don't want to keep them all to myself. You don't have to pay me. I'm going to share these four simple words right now. And those words are, hey, I get it. Hey, I get it. When someone says, wow, it is really too expensive, instead of trying to convince them that it's not, or say, you know, one of those stupid coaching things, <laughs> which is like, uh, well, you we have to invest in yourself. It's, hey, I get it. Someone says, wow, it's too expensive. You say, hey, I get it. Man, I, I've been there. Like, I know the feeling of wanting to buy something and not having the money to buy it. Like, it's a terrible feeling. But would it be okay if we talked about how you might be able to afford it? Can, can we have that conversation? All right. So what I did right there in that moment and saying, hey, I get it. I established a connection with that person because it is endemic in the human experience that we want to be understood. We want to be heard and understood. We want someone else to be with us in whatever we're going. You know, that, that, that's like why, why we like going to... to movies instead of just watching them at home. Like watching a movie in a theater is so much more fun than watching at home by yourself because you have that social experience that enhances it. And that's because we like to be heard and understood. And so when you hear and understand something in a sales process, they immediately drop their guard and they feel more connected to you. Hey, I get it, man. I, I've been there, right? And then when you say, would it be okay 
if we explored, you know, how it might work, what you're doing is you're asking their permission. You're no longer forcing yourself on them. And when you get someone to say yes to a question, it signals them subconsciously it's something that they want. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. And and that's that's where you want to start. You want to start at a place where the other person feels that you get it. And you can't just like fake it. Like I'm I'm not saying say, hey, I get it with everything. Like, I mean, you really have to get it. If someone says it's too expensive, you have to go into yourself emotionally and say, well, when was the last time I wanted to buy something and I couldn't afford it? And I had that bad feeling. And then you bring that out. Like you, you really feel it and you, and you have that connection with them. And that takes you from the opposite side of the negotiation table to the same side. You're kind of putting your arm around them and going, you know what? We're in the same boat here. Like we both had this experience. And then when they feel that, then they're much more open to hearing what you have to have to say next. And then it's it's not a matter of telling of trying to prop them up with the features and benefits. It's, it's a lot more a matter of exploring how they might be able to afford it. Like what are the what are the different ways? What, what are the infinite possibilities that you can bring to them? that you can uncover a new reality for them that they might say, you know what, maybe in that way, I could try to afford it, right? Or, or, or we can continue the conversation. And it doesn't matter what your product is. It doesn't matter what your price is. Um, it doesn't matter you know, what their response is. Starting with, hey, I get it. Starting with understanding what they're feeling is always going to be your best strategy for um, moving forward in the sale instead of allowing them to stop it. No, it's, it's a, a very, very long explanation. Oh no, absolutely. I totally get it. People don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And look, I mean, you've, you've been in the I care business a long time. You know, I've, I've checked out your podcast and it, it's really inspiring, right? Because you're, you you have a, a long family tradition of caring, you know, uh, and I and I really admire that. And so, you know, bringing someone to your product, or bringing someone to God, or bringing someone to a new idea, it's all the same thing. It's all about being influential. And as entrepreneurs, being influential is really the most important thing, because you. If you believe in your product or service, and you and you damn well better if you're in business, but believing in your product or service means that you believe that if it's in the hands of other people, that their lives are going to be better. And so, in that in that reality, it it is it's it's your responsibility to be pretty relentless in encouraging people to buy. You know, when I talk with people about coaching with me, uh, I'm not, it's not that I'm pushy, but I am relentless. You know, I don't just let them say, well, I'll think about it because I know they're not going to think about it. I know that, that what I think about it means is I'm feeling a little uncomfortable, All right, You've brought up some new ideas and concepts that I'm afraid of looking at. So I want to move away from that fear instead of moving into it. 
But I know that they're much better off if they look at those things. Even if they don't end up coaching with me, they're still better off in that conversation, looking at the things that, that they struggle with. So when someone says, you know, I don't know, I'm going to think about it. I say, that's great. And you should think about it. I mean, I don't do anything without thinking about it. Let's Let's talk about what you're thinking about. And in that way, I loop them back into the conversation, right? I, I, I keep their feet to the fire, but it's not from the purpose or the, the perspective of just simply closing them. It's from the perspective of, I want to help them. And I know that if they engage with me as a client, I can help them. I can't, I can't guarantee that if they go with another coach. I mean, I've, I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on really crappy coaches and there's a lot of them out there. And so it's it's up to me to make sure that they um, that they at least consider working with me because I want to help them. And actually, I'd like to help your audience too. Um, I've, I I'd like to offer a giveaway if that's okay. Can I do that? Absolutely, we would love that. Okay. sure, yeah. Thanks. So I have a book I wrote called Jumping the Gap: Kill Your Story and Take Action. In the twenty plus years I've been coaching, what I've found is that. We all exist under stories. Like I can't afford it is actually a story. You know, I'm, I mean, I know it's a very strong story, but it's a story. Or, um, you know, I can't. It's not the right time. I'm not ready. These are all stories that we create to prevent ourselves from even exploring the possibilities, the infinite possibilities of what we can create. So I wrote a book called Jumping the Gap, Kill Your Story and Take Action, which is about that, the gap between where you are and where you want to be about ending that story so you can take action. It's a short, fun, easy book. It's an easy read. And to get it, just text the word GAP, G-A-P, to this number, 213-409-8366. 213-409-8366. Text the word GAP, G-A-P, to 213-409-8366. And you'll, you can download my book, Jumping the Gap, Kill Your Story and Take Action. You can read it in about 20 or 30 minutes. It's a, it's a fun, easy read. Mm, I love that so much. Thanks for the gift. Our people yeah. will absolutely love that. So before I let you go, though, give us some words of encouragement. What <laughs> is the upside when we really start actually caring about the people that were you know, quote unquote, selling to versus mm. just trying to close a sale? Yeah. Wow. That's a really good question. It, you know, as humans, we want to feel connected. We want, you know, and I'll just say it, we want to feel loved. And the, the, the upside of selling this way is that no matter what happens, you're going to leave that sales experience feeling better because you're going to feel connected. And the person that you were uh, encouraging to buy your product or service, they're going to feel better. And whether or not they buy is immaterial. They're going to feel better. And when and you're going to stick with them in their mind. So even if they don't buy right now, you have a higher chance of them buying better as opposed to saying something stupid like, hey, look, you know, when you're ready to take action, give me a call. You know, when you're, you know, when you're ready to stop being so scared, give me a call. They never will. But if you honor their journey and if you take them all the way to a yes or a no, 
then they're going to feel good about that choice. And you want to reinforce that like, Hey, I, I, you know, I'm really proud of you. You know, like we made a choice and the choice is no, but it's a good choice. And they're going to feel good about that. And when they think about, or when other people approach them and say, Hey, do you, do you know a good coach? They're going to go, yeah, I do. You know, I've, I decided not to coach with him because it wasn't the right time, but it might be a good time for you. I think of it like Johnny Appleseed, you know, this, this fable about the guy that went around the country, just dropping apple seeds, you know, on the ground and whatever took root, took root. But he, um, the result was thousands and thousands of, of, uh, of apple trees. And he had no idea what was going to take root because he would just drop the seeds and move on. And that is your, your highest order in being an entrepreneur is being in the changing people's lives business. I hope that answers your question. Absolutely. It does. So real quick, before I let you go, uh, mm-hmm. give us the uh, number, uh, you know, that we need to text again one more time. Yeah. Thanks. I, I appreciate that to get my book, jumping the gap, kill your story and take action, which is about jumping the gap of your fears, your concerns and, and taking action in your life. Just text the word gap G A P to two, one, three, four, Oh, nine, Eight three six six. Text GAP G A P to two one three four zero nine eight three six six two one three four zero nine eight three six six and text the word GAP. Love that. Well, Dan, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the show today. It has been absolutely delightful. Thank you for what you do, for what you're bringing to the world, and just for the um, the really beautiful messages that you share. I mean, I've been listening to your podcast and it's just, it's fantastic. I I really appreciate and, and admire you, Steve. Thank you for what you do. What do you believe and how can you make it real? What are you doing about what you believe? We will be right back here on Thriving Entrepreneur. Hi, my name is Steve Kidd. I am a third-generation minister, an international best-selling author of multiple books, and I help people write, publish, and market their books to bestseller. In fact, there are literally thousands of people that have used the system that I created to be able to write, publish, and market their books, and now they're best-selling authors, and you're next. I just wanted to come on for a minute, say hi to you, tell you a little bit about me, introduce myself, and tell you... I know the world is waiting on your message, and I would be so honored to be part of sharing your message with the world. Go to AskStevekid.com and schedule a time to talk today. This is Steve. Welcome back. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur. We are going to jump right into our last guest that's showing what they're doing with what they believe. Join me in welcoming Dana and Brett Frank. Hey guys, how are you doing today? Doing awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. So glad to have you here with us. First off, if you could just give us a quick overview of who you are and how you show up in the world. Certainly. Uh, We are located in Seattle, Washington, and we run a third generation real estate investment apartment investment company. 
Uh, it was started in 1950 by my father, um, Brett's grandfather. And that's been our life's work is uh, providing affordable quality housing. So, I mean, there's a lot of different viewpoints on affordable and quality. And of course, that depends on the neighborhood you live in, you know, the city you live in as well. But what kind of a level of housing are, are you guys talking about when you think about affordable housing for folks? We have a portfolio that's a compromise of studios, one, twos, and threes. Uh, as my mom mentioned, our, our portfolio has been around since the early 50s. Uh, we've taken some buildings that we continue to update, renovate, and make sure are below market rent in the city of Seattle, which, as we've seen in the last couple of years, has certainly risen in terms of cost with an influx of people and new development. So our, our brand and specialty is being very accessible. We are, you know, we work with our tenants on a case-by-case -case basis. We're with them and we're members of the community just like they are. You know, we want to provide kind of housing that they can see themselves living in for a long time. We've had residents who've been with us for 10, 20, 30, even 40 years in some cases. That's that's correct. That's kind of amazing. In Seattle market, I mean, it's just gone so far. I remember when, and it's been a few years since I lived in the Pacific Northwest, but I, wonder, I remember when I first moved there, I moved about two years too late. Um, and everybody had already discovered, especially the area north of Seattle, the particular house I was living in was for sale for like $100,000. And the person had bought it two years previously at like $20,000. Um, is the market calmed down or is it still kind of skyrocketing like it was back, you know, that was 30 years ago? With interest rates being a little higher, I was actually talking to some friends the other day, you know, and they're complaining about a five and a half percent interest rate. And I remember in the 1980s, we had interest rates as high as 18 percent. So, you know, that's a invert relationship between interest and the housing costs. But Seattle's market is still pretty high. Is there a specific section? I mean, because, you know, when you think of Seattle, those at least of us that have ever been there, sometimes we think specifically, you know, like Queen Anne Hill and stuff like that. And other times Seattle is more like Olympia and ends just north of Everett, like up in Marysville or something like that. Do you go that far or are you more area specific? We are central Seattle. My father arrived in 1950 from Detroit. He was 18 years old and he made his first investment in an area near the University of Washington where he was attending classes. And people say, you know, how did an 18 year old black kid out of Detroit, you know, acquire property? And my father, as my um, family knows, he was just a hustler and he figured out uh, how to work off the down payment. Um, he was a drummer as well. And he got into this house and then rented out to his fellow students at the University of Washington rooms to make the mortgage, which at the time was $48 a month, which was a fortune in 1950. Um, but then he and my mother got together, and this was during a time of redlining where banks were not lending money into the black area in the central Seattle. And my parents continued to invest every year for 19 years without any bank funding until Liberty Bank, a uh, Black-owned bank, rather than the first loan in 1969. And so our properties, uh, we still own those properties that started back then. 
and they're all within that central location, which has now become gentrified. And it's pretty desirable locations of Capitol Hill, Leshy, Genesee Park. And uh, yeah, they're highly desirable locations. I totally love that. And you kind of mentioned, and I saw this in your bio too, you have quite an interesting musical background as well. Tell us a little bit about that too. I do come from a very talented family um, in all genres. I've got an uncle that is a federal judge. I've got another uncle who happens to be Quincy Jones. <laughs> My father was quite an accomplished drummer. He was listed as Seattle's best drummer. And uh, that's where my parents met actually in the 1950s. My mother was a model. She was the first uh, African-American seafarer queen, which is our biggest celebration. That inaugural year, they uh, celebrated um, queens from every nationality. And my father was in a band playing and they got together and um, uh, my mother won Miss Bronze. <laughs> and eventually my parents opened a nightclub in Pioneer Square called the Pink Pussycat. And the Pink Pussycat had acts from Ike and Tina Turner um, to, I mean, I grew up with Lou Rawls and a bunch of uh, Dizzy Gillespie and, and uh, just great jazz icons, uh, Esther Phillips, staying at our house and performing at my parents' nightclub. So we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of musical history, Little Richard, I mean, you name it, that was my childhood. Wow, what a fun childhood, even just with the names of the people you said, let alone all of that. That's so cool. Um, but you decided you chose to stay in the family business in real estate. Um, and now Brett's in it as well. That's pretty cool. Can you talk to us a little bit about generational family businesses and maybe even a little bit of advice and how to keep your kids connected in your business when, you know, kids are kids? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what I love when I read about you being a third generational minister. Um, you know, it's just kind of in your DNA. And statistics show that, you know, um, only 12% of family businesses make it to the third generation. And when my parents started in 1950, I don't know if they had a vision for what they were creating, but I became a steward of what they, they created. And then my children, I just raised them from a very early age. I mean, they know the title of my upcoming book is Get Up and Get On It, because every morning uh, my father would show up and my knock at my door at around six o'clock and say, hey, it's time to get up and get on it. And I dreaded that. Um, but I did. And I instilled those same lessons in my kids. So they learned early on to, you know, get up on weekends and we daily go and check on properties and pick up trash and engage with our residents. And, uh, you know, it just becomes second nature. And I, I don't think it's something that you can wait to instill. Um, and my children um, learned it early. And so I'm just very fortunate that now my adult son and my daughter, who just graduated from Chapman University, is following suit. Well said, Mom. I, I agree, Steve. I think that in terms of when you talk about kids being kids, this is all we've ever known, uh, working with, with family and what that means and the ability to, to have that. When I graduated from the University of Washington, I think I was uh, resistant to the idea. You know, I actually moved to Chicago for a few years and, and got a corporate job. But after about three years there, I, 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 it wasn't for me. I realized the opportunity I had and the blessing that my family had given me had given me to to join them back home and and work and you know support one another was I, I couldn't pass that up. So when I I got back here and I've been working with my family ever since, just taking the lessons they gave me when I was young. 
And I'll also note that my 91-year-old mother, Brett's grandmother, still gets up and gets on it every day with us. So it's definitely in the family genes. I absolutely love that. That is so cool. So, I mean, there have been so many changes, even just in the last decade, let alone. I mean, we went through some really interesting times there for a few months during COVID and and all kinds of things. What is the secret to weathering all of the, especially when you're talking real estate, you know, all the changes in the neighborhoods and the demographic and all those kind of things. What allows you to be able to continue moving on and advancing in that industry? Absolutely. I mentioned it earlier. We really do work with our residents on a case-by-case basis. We are members of this community. We pride ourselves on being accessible and, and, and working with our residents. So, you know, when the pandemic hit in 2020, we, you know, worked with folks if they had to, you know, figure out ways that we could help them work off paying their rent if it was, uh Cleaning up, cleaning up around common area properties, et cetera. But we, we we always had an open line of communication. And then, you know, you'd look at what some of the major changes in the last couple of years, where we're at in Seattle, there's been uh, significant changes in kind of policy and, and, and the different, you know, things that are trending. So, you know, we stay very engaged with local politics and what's happening and, and how we can continue to provide the best quality affordable housing out there. And today's an important day because it's election day. And that's what we just, uh, you know, make sure that we spread the message of how important it is to vote because we have been had front row seats to seeing how these different laws impact us. And, you know, the the pendulum has swung really far against uh, housing providers. And we've got several situations where people are stepping out of the business because they just can't afford it. I mean, Seattle has a moratorium on winter evictions. They have a moratorium, you know, during COVID, it was really, really tough. And we have had a lot of fellow housing providers that just can't afford to operate. And so they walked away. And, you know, it, it, it's a sad thing because housing is so needed and we need housing providers to stay in, in there. Yeah, there's one thing for sure, and that's that people are always going to prefer, I think, to live indoors. <laughs> you know, there's some little bit of a question to that every once in a while, but I think for the most part, everybody still wants to do that. So what are some of the suggestions that you would have for people who have never been in the real estate industry, but are deciding at this point that they'd like to jump into the real estate industry? I use an acronym I created called REAL, and it's the R is research. Do your research, get out on the weekends, go to open houses, study the market, Find out, you know, is there a light rail coming in? What's going to happen? What impacts? Is there, you know, a PCC or, uh, you know, what's going to happen to impact the neighborhood? So really engage in your research. The second is expand your network. I'm a huge advocate of uh, lining yourself with um, your community and expanding your network. There's always people. That's how my father really got started as well was, you know, expanding his network. And then the A is aligning with that network. And there's a lot of people that don't want to be bothered with the day-to-day hassles of being a a housing provider, but they have capital and they're looking to invest. So align with them. And then the L is leverage. You know, right now, uh, Chase Bank has committed $30 billion to bridge the racial financial wealth gap. There, take your bankers to lunch, you know, leverage your relationships. There's opportunities everywhere. 
My mom has a great saying that I, I, I think is is crucial that she she's taught us that her network is her net worth. And that that means a lot, you know, that that we look at who we surround ourselves with, we give back, we volunteer in our community. And that that has kept us really involved in continuing to strive forward. And then for those who I think want to get involved from the start, the biggest thing they have to overcome is just the fear. You want to talk about that? Yeah, just turning fear into fuel. And I mean, we all have moments where, you know, life has a path. And, you know, when my father was leaving Detroit, you know, he could have been very comfortable and done as his father suggested and taken that line on a job on the assembly line of either Chrysler or Ford. But, you know, he took a, a chance and drove all the way across country with his drums in his van and came to Seattle and, you know, really got busy with that real acronym. He did his research, expanded his market, aligned with it and leveraged it. And here we are today. That is so amazing. And the impact that you've made. Before I let you go, I'd like to talk just a little bit more here about um, equity, I guess is probably the best word to use in housing, you know, because the house itself doesn't care. You know, it's not like the house cares who lives in it. How do we help everybody be able to truly have a place to live? I mean, is it tiny houses like some people are saying, or is it just more building or it? With your vantage point, are you seeing some kind of answer to the homeless situation and stuff like that? You know, what I love about what I do is I always say uh, property doesn't care what the color of your skin is, your family's economic status, where you were born, your level of education, birth defects, lifestyle, past mishaps, poor decisions. Equity grows and cash erodes. And that's what I constantly tell people is that, you know, you've got to figure out some way to align yourself with the right individuals if you don't have the cash to get in the game. I mean, our happiest day is when one of our long-term residents comes to us and says, we're moving because we're buying a house. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's the goal is, you know, when my father started off, Airbnb was illegal. We would get fined. My father would even get sent to jail, you know, sometimes for renting out um, spaces that he had subdivided. But nowadays, Airbnb is a wonderful option for people to create income in their home. And, you know, it's it's basically making sacrifices as few will make today so that they can live tomorrow like few can. And I'll add a couple more thoughts there. I think I think in terms of where we're at today with our, our, our housing crisis, it's a supply and demand situation. We like to stay engaged. We are engaged with our local elected officials, and I encourage other folks to do so as well, to help cut through some of the red tape, build more housing of all different types. We need workforce housing, affordable housing, market housing, et cetera, so that we can continue to provide housing across space for all people, accessory dwelling units, detached accessory dwelling units in people's homes and lots as they change some of the, the zoning laws that allow more building as we, you know, as a society continue to grow upwards. Last thing I want to add there is it's just so important, whatever your community that you're in, in is to give back. I mean, we support Plymouth Housing. This this week, we're having Mary's Place, No Child Sleeps Outside. I'm on that campaign. campaign. And it's just so important to be aware because whatever's happening around you affects your whole and your bottom line. It absolutely does. I appreciate your perspective from both a business standpoint as well as 
the give back standpoint. So for people who live in the greater Seattle area and they're looking for a house um, or a place to stay, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, my website is uh, Dana at the real Dana Frank.com. And um, our, would you want to give our, you can find us on LinkedIn uh, through Dana Frank or Brett Frank hyphen Looney. And we'd love to connect. Absolutely. Well, I really love that. Um, and you mentioned your book. I would be remiss with all the authors that I work with. If you didn't tell us just a little bit about your book before I let you go. Thank you, Steve. The story really started off, my father's been gone 27 years, and I was like, how do I express to my children the legacy of what his their grandparents started? And then Wiley is put, publishing the book, and uh, they had me make it more from a memoir to a um, business book. And so, you know, in the book, I just really give tools on, you know, how you get started, how you be that fire starter. If it's the first leg in our family, we always talked about passing the baton. But for a lot of people, it's a matter of being the first one to pick up the baton and start the relay. So, you know, I really talk about our history. I talk about the issues that are inherent to being a housing provider, but the fact that housing uh, and investing in real estate can create long-term generational wealth. And, um, you know, just give tools for the different programs. Like I mentioned, Chase Bank's got that $30 billion commitment. People have to know how to access those funds and to go out and, and resource and get them. Well, Brett and Dana, I really appreciate the time that you spent with us here on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. We Steve. so appreciate it. I love how their whole business is about taking an amazingly needed and urgent need and really doing something about it, being about it. They are the ultimate version of showing what you're doing with what you believe. All three of these guests are really putting together something amazing to make the world a better place, to help underprivileged people in underprivileged communities, to help have affordable housing, and help us know that we can do anything we can make it real if we believe it. And I want you to believe this. You are uniquely brilliant. You were created for a purpose. And the world needs you. I encourage you today to take the you that is you and do what you believe. Live it out. Be who you were meant to be. And ask yourself every day, what am I doing with what I believe? And that way, you can live as a thriving entrepreneur. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Thriving Entrepreneur today. If you want to get your question answered, send an email to questions at wehelpyouthrive.com. We look forward to you joining us again next time. My name is Steve Kidd. I am a third-generation minister, an international best-selling author of multiple books, and I help people write, publish, and market their books to bestseller. In fact, there are literally thousands of people that have used the system that I created to be able to write, publish, and market their books, and now they're best-selling authors, and you're next. I just wanted to come on for a minute, say hi to you, tell you a little bit about me, introduce myself and tell you 
I know the world is waiting on your message, and I would be so honored to be part of sharing your message with the world. Go to AskSteveKid.com and schedule a time to talk today.